Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds on this clear but rather brisk morning. Uh, we are delighted to have one of our own faculty, Jeff Parsonet, give a talk today, The Golden Grapes of Wrath, a discussion of Staph aureus, which we're going to learn about. And thank you, Jeff. He'll be introduced in just a moment by Brian Marsh, who is our interim section chief in infectious disease and international health and an associate professor of medicine here. I wanted to call your attention to there are no conflicts of interest that have been associated with this talk, but I also want to call your attention to the fact that next Friday's meeting, rather than a grand rounds, will be a full faculty meeting. And I encourage you and your, and your colleagues to please come to that meeting because we'll be talking about many issues and it'll be a little bit of a state of the state talk about how our department's doing. So please spread that word for next Friday's Grand Rounds time. Without further ado, Brian, please come and introduce Jeff. All right, thank you very much, Rich. So my, my pleasure to invite, or to invite, to introduce uh, Dr. Jeff Parsonet, uh, known to um, probably most people in the audience, a faculty member of our infectious disease section. Um, Jeff uh, started his medical education at Princeton and from there sort of steadily headed north. Um, went from uh, Princeton to Yale for his, uh, sorry, to uh, New York, to NYU for his uh, MD. From there moved to Yale for his internship residency. From there continued north up the coast to Boston, to uh, BI, where he did, and the Brigham, where he did his uh, ID fellowship. Stayed on at Harvard for a few years, and then came to Dartmouth, his last step, at least that we know of, and his migration north. Jeff is nodding his head, no plans to go to Montreal, I gather. Um, he's uh, been at Dartmouth now since 1987, uh, currently a professor of medicine in the section of infectious disease, a number of other responsibilities, of course, over his years here. Probably most importantly, just to mention, he was the um, director of our fellowship program until, Jeff, what, two years ago, three years ago? Yeah, about, yeah. about that. Um, so for many, many years, uh, many fellows uh, went through the program under his direction. A couple of them in the audience today, Dr. Andrews there, uh, me here. Uh, Dr. Pinto Powell sitting there. So uh, <clears throat> gave that up to Dr. Zuckerman, who was uh, continuing uh, the wonderful tradition. Uh, Jeff also is um, co-chair of the antimicrobial subcommittee uh, of P&T. Main interests uh, are in staph research interest in staphylococcal infections, in particular in uh, toxic shock syndrome toxin-mediated disease, which he's been in really since the beginning of his career and from early on in our understanding around toxin-mediated disease uh, from Staph aureus. So let me hand off to Dr. Parsnet. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Brian's official title is uh, Interim Section Chief for Life. It's been a long time. Um, I tried to come up with a, a uh, witty title for the uh, for my talk. I really couldn't do it. Uh, people have asked me what it what it's supposed to mean. Um, I'm, I'm really going to be uh, giving a lecture on Staph aureus infections. It's sort of like asking someone to come, hey, give us a talk about cardiology, because uh, most of what we deal with, it seems, in uh, in ID these days is uh, staphylococcal infections. Um, but I'm going to focus on on two things today: uh, antibiotic resistance and staphylococcobacteremia, which we see a great deal of. The, the basis for my title was uh, sort of the, the nomenclature for staph. Uh, Staphylococcus comes from the Greek, or the son of a Greek god uh, the, named Staphylus, who's the son of the wine god Bacchus, to whom I prayed last night at around 11 o'clock. And, uh, <laughs> and, and the name is usually associated with uh, grapes or wine. Bacchus was the king of, or the god of wine or something. And, and the reason for this is that staph grows in grape-like clusters, and the aureus is from the uh, word uh, Latin golden, and it makes this nice golden uh, appearance on a plate. And these are these nice uh, grape-like clusters, clusters of staph. So I want to start with uh, uh, a brief history 
of staphylococcal resistance. This should be a review for all of you, but I try to put it all on one slide here. So uh, staph was, um, penicillin was discovered in the late 20s, was really introduced as a possible clinical uh, uh, drug in uh, about 1942. And when, uh, at this point, staph was always sensitive to penicillin. But in the beginning of what we see is the inexorable trend toward resistance. Um, as, soon as, uh, as soon as penicillin was introduced, staph figured out how to make penicillinase. So staph very quickly became penicillin-resistant staph aureus, which we call methicillin-susceptible staph aureus is the nomenclature that we use. Um, so in order to combat uh, this, uh, penicillinase-resistant beta-lactams were invented in the late 1950s, and that's basically what we use here is nafcillin, oxacillin, where the first one was methicillin, uh, from which uh, it derives its name, but we no longer use methicillin. So for uh, many years of, uh, of, of our practice, um, methicillin-sensitive staph was, uh, was what we were dealing with. In the late 1950s, it didn't take very long. No sooner were these things developed than we started seeing methicillin-resistant staph, but it was really quite um, unusual. When I was a medical student, we did not see much methicillin-resistant staph, and I remember just not using vancomycin any more than, say, nowadays we use amikacin or something like that. But vancomycin uh, began to be in use for this unusual organism, methicillin-resistant staph. But things quickly devolved after that. In the, um, we started seeing more hospital-associated MRSA. And then in the late 90s, and I'll go into this a little bit more in a few minutes, there started to be the community-acquired uh, methicillin-resistant staph. And these are, although we call them both MRSA, they're really a little bit different in terms of their, uh, their mechanisms of resistance. And to combat these, we have a variety of new drugs. Uh, vancomycin is the old one, but then linazolid, daptomycin, tigacycline, uh, uh, ceftaroline, et cetera. And there are several different mechanisms of, of um, methicillin resistance, um, as you can see. And then now what we're approaching uh, the great fear of is that we're going to be seeing vancomycin resistance. Starting in the late 90s, we start seeing vancomycin intermediate resistance staph and then a small number of cases of truly vancomycin-resistant staph. So this is uh, the prospects for the future and has been the um, energy for developing new drugs. So just a few background reminders about, about uh, staph. Um, it's a human pathogen. It's spread from person to person, mainly by human contact. It does exist on inanimate surfaces for short periods of time, so it can be spread right. by athletic equipment, et cetera. It's mainly Okay, this is something I said. All right. Um, most people are, uh, before they get infections, are first colonized with staph. Um, and if you eradicate colonization by various protocols that we've heard discussions about here in Grand Rounds in the past, you can decrease the likelihood of, of say, postoperative wound infections. And you can detect colonization by culturing um, mucosal sites. So this is a part of a study that, that I did here uh, 10 or 15 years ago where we did cultures of uh, 3,000 women. This was part of a toxic shock study where we did uh, nasal swabs, vaginal swabs, and anal swabs from 3,000 uh, women from around the country. Um, this shows two things. It shows TSST1, toxin, toxic shocks producing staph, but also staph in general. And you can see that colonization at any site, these were of healthy young women, was about 25%, with uh, the nose being, nasal pharynx being most common, but also a fair percentage of anal and, and vaginal colonization. So there are certain factors that increase the likelihood of being colonized with staph. Recent hospitalization or working in a hospital, it's said that hospital employees are probably up around 30, 35%. Recent use of antibiotics, um, chronic renal disease, uh, hemodialysis, dialysis, diabetes, chronic skin conditions, which seem to increase uh, colonization with staph injecting drug use. So as I mentioned, uh, 20 to 30% of people at any given time, probably uh, intermittently 60 or 80%, with a few people never seemingly colonized for one reason or another. Um, so let's, let's then shift focus uh, to MRSA. Um, MRSA is, is really the most commonly identified antibiotic-resistant pathogen in most parts of the world, certainly in the, in the uh, uh, developed world. 
In many hospitals, over half of infections caused by staph are due to MRSA. <coughs> the latest data from DHMC is 37%. In many urban areas, it's more like 40 or 50%. Um, it's a bad bug, not because it's more uh, pathogenic, really, than methicillin-sensitive staph, but because it's more resistant to antibiotics that work well, and those are the beta-lactam antibiotics. Okay, it really isn't a more dangerous bug, despite uh, you know popular conceptions otherwise, except for it's resistant. In fact, in some ways, it may be slightly less pathogenic. For example, toxic shock is not caused by MRSA, which is that those strains don't make the toxin. But we do know that being infected with MRSA increases mortality, in-hospital mortality, prolongs hospitalization, and in tremendously increased costs of hospitalization. There are well-known risk factors for, uh, for hospital-acquired MRSA infection, namely a history of hospitalizations, uh, surgery, residence in a long-term care facility, uh, having a catheter in place, injecting drug use, or certainly previous infection uh, with MRSA. Now, uh, what really changed in this field is the development of a new strain of staph in the late 1990s, which we now call community-acquired MRSA. And this was first heralded uh, in the late 90s by a report in MMWR 1999 uh, from uh, the uh, upper Midwest, where they described children with severe staphylococcal disease that's, that were treated with cephalosporins, as we usually do with skin and soft tissue infections, and failed and did very poorly, uh, died. And, they, and what they discovered was that MRSA infections are emerging in community settings among patients without established risk factors, like the ones I just described. And this has really changed, um, let me show you one slide here, this has really changed the, uh, the, the uh, spectrum. So you can see this is at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, um, the susceptibility to methicillin at this hospital. And you can see we were sort of chugging along at 80, 90% sensitive to methicillin until the early 2000s. Um, so we were about two or three years behind that Minnesota report. And, since, and that's when community-acquired MRSA uh, really uh, reached our area. And as you can see, since that time, it's been relatively stable, really, in 60 to 70%, 37% resistance, uh, as I said uh, a moment ago. So that really um, uh, was what changed. Is, and there's a, one clone in particular, uh, USA 300, which is quite prevalent in the United States, which seems to be the major community-acquired MRSA. So we get infections like this. Uh, this is a New England Journal picture of a bodybuilder who injected himself with something and, and got this big uh, abscess, soft tissue abscess, which is what we see a lot of with this community-acquired strain. So there are differences between these two. Uh, the, the classic hospital-acquired, the risk factors are those I mentioned, basically exposure to healthcare system. And these, this mainly causes nosocomial pneumonia and bacteremia, Lyme-related bacteremia, et cetera. And these strains are resistant to multiple antibiotics. They tend to be resistant not only to the beta-lactams, but often to clindamycin, quinolones, sometimes to trimethoprosulfa, sometimes to the tetracyclines. Whereas the community-acquired strains are more broadly susceptible. Uh, they're more um, uh, variable, they're so-called posse resistant, which means we can often use some of those antibiotics that I just mentioned. And they mainly cause uh, skin and soft tissue infections, but they can cause necrotizing pneumonia, such as after a case of influenza uh, and, and a variety of other, uh, other things. So uh, people come in off the street without any risk factors whatsoever for this strain, but there are some things that seem to increase the risk. It's person-to-person -person contact, so people in correctional facilities, uh, contact sports, there have been some well-described outbreaks, including uh, the Dartmouth football team several years ago with person-to-person uh, -person spread, usually the linemen, actually, who are banging against each other and spreading this organism. Um, uh, barrack, people live in barracks, Native Americans for some reason, men who have sex with men, injecting drug users, uh, et cetera. So, but anyone really can get it without any, uh, any uh, apparent risk factors. So how, is, how are we responding uh, to this challenge? There's a number of drugs for treatment, and we're really not at the end of our rope uh, with treatment, although there are some highly resistant strains for which we have few options. What I've listed here is, is uh, not totally comprehensive. There are some additional ones. 
But these are the ones that I, I really want to talk about today. Uh, and, and the ones in yellow are things that we have in the hospital. So vancomycin is really still the, um, the uh, cornerstone of treatment for MRSA, and I'll talk a great deal about, about vancomycin. Then there's linazolid, which we have on formulary, daptomycin, tigacycline, which is a tetracycline uh, a derivative, ceftaroline, which is a new fourth generation or fifth generation, perhaps, cephalosporin. It's the first cephalosporin with activity against uh, MRSA. <coughs> Clindamycin is often, but not always, effective. And I'll talk more about these drugs in a minute. These are two other drugs that are currently available, which we don't have on our formulary, and I won't discuss further. And then there's a variety of oral drugs. Linazolid is also, uh, can be given by mouth. Bactrim, uh, trimethoprim sulfur, Bactrim receptra, is, is an effective drug for treating staph, and is um, one of two drugs that we commonly use for treating outpatients with MRSA infections. Uh, trimethoprim sulfa and uh, doxycycline or minocycline, which is maybe even a little better, but we don't use it very much. Uh, you can use the quinolones under some circumstances, but you have to be careful because resistance emerges and we, and we generally discourage it for that reason. Rifampin is often an excellent drug. I'll talk more about it, but it always has to be used in combination with another drug because when it's used as monotherapy, resistance uh, develops uh, very quickly. So. I want to talk about uh, vancomycin. My daughter said, Daddy, why do you hate vancomycin? And, uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, I, 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 don't, I don't hate it, but it's really pretty bad. It's a bad drug. And it's almost on our admission orders to the hospital now, vancomycin and zosin for just about every patient. And there are a lot of problems with vancomycin. There are some good things about it, and I've listed them on the slide here. It's inexpensive. Um, it's not a lot of drug interactions with vancomycin. has very predictable pharmacokinetics. We know how to give it. We can check levels on it, but if you dose it properly, you don't even need to. It can be administered by peripheral IV. It's infrequent dosing. Usually in most people over young childhood, it can be given twice a day, often once a day. Um, it's a relatively safe drug, and it's known and familiar with documented efficacy, even though that efficacy is not especially good. But it's a, it's a drug that we're all very, very comfortable with. But there's some real problems with vancomycin. Um, I'm going to focus a lot on vanco, and, and you might ask why. And the reason is we use it so much that I think it's important, really, for people to understand its, its strengths and weaknesses. Um, it has very poor tissue penetration. So in any kind of study that's ever been done looking at uh, infections where you have to get good penetration, let's say osteomyelitis and endocarditis, it's always inferior to the comparator drugs. It's never superior, and it's usually inferior to the comparator drugs. And that's true in animal models as well as uh, clinical studies. There's a strong inoculum effect, which means if you have a lot of bacteria, it's not as effective. It's slowly bactericidal for Staph aureus, both in vitro and in vivo. It does not penetrate well into biofilms. Biofilms are a very important mechanism of staphylococcal persistence, uh, especially in foreign bodies like uh, catheters and prosthetic devices. It does not work well in biofilms. It's inactive for bacteria in stationary phase. So if you have a lot of bacteria, some of them are just kind of sitting there and not multiplying, and it doesn't kill those particularly well. It's nephrotoxic, not very, but it's somewhat nephrotoxic, especially at high doses and when used with other nephrotoxic drugs. And as I'll talk about in a minute, we're now using it at those higher doses. So nephrotoxicity, while not often severe, is quite frequent. And it has to be given slowly so as to avoid the red man syndrome, which you get from rapid infusion, which can be logistically difficult in some patients, especially getting uh, combinations of drugs. So it's hard to look at how effective this is for MRSA because we don't really have any good, we haven't up until recently had any good comparator drugs. But let's just look at what this drug does for methicillin-susceptible staph, and it's probably about how effective it is for MRSA as well. There have been a number of studies, um, which I've summarized over the next few slides. I won't pronounce the first name, but he, he studied 240 patients with methicillin-sensitive staph treated with vancomycin or cefazolin and found a significant uh, higher failure rate with vancomycin. And again, I show you this because I think this is this would be true of MRSA also if you had a good comparator that vancomycin would do poorly. Kim looked at 27 patients, 
and found a significant higher mortality in those patients treated with Vanco. Uh, uh, this person, Schweitzer, looked at a large number of patients and looked at 30-day uh, mortality and tremendous difference in mortality with vancomycin as opposed to uh, a beta-lactam antibiotic. Three more studies. Uh, Chang found a six-and-a-half-fold higher likelihood of persistent bacteremia or relapse among patients treated with vancomycin versus nafcillin. Really quite a remarkable result. Uh, Kata, 120 patients. Again, significantly higher mortality with vanco than with a beta-lactam. And Chan looked at uh, dialysis patients, hundreds of thousands uh, in their study, but they looked at patients with staph bacteremia, and they found that um, the uh, rate of hospitalization or death was much lower with cefazolin than with vancomycin. So what I would say about this, again, I'm basically, we, don't, we try not to use vanco for methicillin-sensitive staph, but what this really shows is what an inferior drug this is in general for staph. And just the little caveat I put on the bottom is don't even think of using vanco for treatment of serious MSSA infections. The time when this is done most commonly is when we're trying to take advantage of its favorable pharmacokinetics. So we send a patient out with, with bacteremia, uh, OPAT, for example, either give nafcillin every four hours, or you could give vancomycin maybe once a day, or a dialysis patient, how about once a week? It's just not as good, and we very strongly discourage its use for that purpose. So I think we then have to ask, how much longer are we going to continue using um, vancomycin as the standard therapy for MRSA? Its activity uh, against MRSA is weak and getting weaker because of something that's uh, known as MIC creep. Um, Rich Zuckerman is often called our MIC creep, but no, that's not, that's not what I mean. So, uh, so it's, um, activity against MRSA is weak and getting weaker. And we can see um, the shift uh, in vancomycin MICs, minimum inhibitory concentration, is going up. This was a study in, uh, in uh, early last decade at UCLA. A shift in MIC uh, from less than 0.5 mics per mil up to one during a five-year period. Um, uh, big increases, as you can see, and uh, in staff in general. This is, um, so this is called MIC creep. Um, this is a graphic representation of it. Uh, the solid line here shows the distribution of minimum inhibitory concentrations in 2001, and then you can see moving over to the right up to 2005, the latest thing I have uh, data. Uh, and so now, we'll often see on our, on our reports um, the vancomycin MICs, and when it's higher than one, we definitely try to avoid using vancomycin. But even in MICs of one, the data show that um, that the or that the uh, drug might not be as effective. So MRSA is increasingly resistant to vanco, though it still says sensitive. And although the data are not uniformly uh, uh, convincing, I think the general consensus is that strains with a higher vancomycin MIC are associated with a higher rates of treatment failure. So one study of 414 patients with MRSA bacteremia found that isolates with uh, MIC of 2 mg per liter or mics per mil had a 6.4 time the odds uh, uh, risk of death compared to strains with MIC of 1. So this seems to be uh, a significant um, a significant factor. So for that reason, really over the past, I don't know, maybe five years, we've really changed the way we use Vanco. And we're essentially uh, trying to get therapeutic levels faster, and we've increased what we consider to be our ideal trough levels of Vanco. It used to be under 10, we used to say, so as to avoid nephrotoxicity. And now for serious infections, we basically look for trough levels of 15 to 20, okay? Um, so the American Thoracic Society, Infectious Disease Society, suggests trough levels of 15 to 20 for healthcare-associated pneumonia. American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association have recommended trough levels of 15 to 20 for endocarditis. And one thing that we don't do very often here, and which I think we should do more often, is give a loading dose. Because, as you know, if we're giving uh, dancomycin, it really takes four or five doses before we achieve uh, quote-unquote therapeutic levels in the 15 to 20 range. And that may not be enough for a patient with staph bacteremia. So for serious infections, we really should be giving a loading dose, which is variably written as either 25 to 30 mgs uh, per, per kilogram. And I'd like to encourage 
people, uh, house staff writing orders to think about that um, for uh, first dose treatment of the vancomycin. Um, okay, so in light of that fact, how toxic is vancomycin? How much should we be concerned about it? So it has a nef synergistic nephrotoxicity with aminoglycosides and probably with other nephrotoxic drugs. A study um, looking at vancomycin alone for pneumonia showed that if the vancomycin uh, trough level was less than 15, 30% uh, um, of patients experienced some nephrotoxicity, a decrease of 25% of creatinine clearance. Whereas the vancomycin trough was greater than 15, which is what we now encourage, almost 60% of patients experienced some nephrotoxicity. That's really quite remarkable um, uh, that, that we see that much toxicity with the drug, and yet it still remains uh, so frequently used. And I, and I think is why we're really looking for other drugs. So the, the conclusion is that higher trough levels may be more effective, but at the cost of, of greater toxicity. Now, I'm not going to focus on vancomycin resistance very much because it's still not a problem, real resistance. It's not a problem that we have to deal with a great deal. But it has been reported, and many people anticipate that, that it won't be long before we can't use vancomycin at all. Um, the, the first uh, reports of this came also in the late 90s uh, with uh, some vancomycin-resistant strains, which are commonly referred to as Visa vancomycin intermediate strains, or sometimes Giza glycopeptide-resistant strains, because the MICs are in what we would consider to be the intermediate range, not fully resistant, which we call VRSA, vancomycin resistance. Um, these are called intermediate, but the, but the clinical experience is that these patients do not do well on vancomycin. And there are risk factors which you'd anticipate, basically exposure to vancomycin or people who have been on vancomycin. So a history of dialysis, multiple courses of antibiotics in the past, including vancomycin, ICU admission, or prior infection with, with MRSA. These things predispose to these and we have not seen very many here at all. I don't know if Joe Schwartzman's here or anyone in the lab, but I think we've only seen a couple of these strains uh, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock with these higher MICs. But it's probably, it's probably going to happen. Now, why this is uh, occurring is really kind of an interesting story. It's a novel mechanism of resistance where the strains make this uh, thick extracellular matrix, which works as a vancomycin sink. Basically, it uh, makes it difficult for vancomycin to reach the binding site on the cell wall. And, uh, and uh, so you're just not getting enough vancomycin into the cell. And I have an electron micrograph here. These are, the magnification is different, but I think you can see these are the staph uh, and very small extracellular matrix. And then these are these, uh, all this gunk on the outside here uh, works as a vancomycin sink and prevents the vancomycin from, from really getting in. So, back to the question, should vancomycin remain our standard therapy? Um, maybe not, it still is, and I'm not sure as an institution we're ready to go away from it, although we talk about it. Uh, uh, in several studies, uh, it's been inferior to um, other agents. So, for example, there was a well-publicized and somewhat criticized study of vancomycin versus linazolid for nosocomial pneumonia. There were two double-blind studies. And they found that initial therapy with linazolid was associated with significantly better survival and clinical cure rates than was vancomycin. There have been some criticism of the study. Tim uh, Leahy has written a, a, a published letter or article looking at some of the methodologies here. And it's not so convincing that we use linazolid as our first-line drug here. But at many institutions, they are. Um, uh, skin and soft tissue infections, there have been a number of studies using both linazolid and dalbavancin. And in, in all these studies, these other drugs have been, have been superior. So let me spend a few minutes talking about some of these other drugs. We use them, and we use them more and more each year. First one is linazolid, which is a class of drug called oxazolidinone. It's the only one in this class, although there's another one coming probably this year. Um, the brand name for this is Zyvox. Um, it's a protein synthesis inhibitor. It's bacterostatic. Uh, maybe too much is made of that, um, but we don't use, we, the teaching has always been we don't use bacterostatic drugs for osteomyelitis, bacteremia, or um, endocarditis, although there are published reports of this drug's efficacy for all those situations. Um, resistance is unusual. The very nice thing about this drug is it can be given 
uh, IV or a PO at the same dose, it's very well absorbed. Um, the toxicity, however, is significant um, with uh, uh, myelosuppression usually occurring after two weeks. It's reversible, however, so you can monitor it. And the major problem, or one of the major problems, is its extreme expense, with each pill being about $90. So, um, so you know, a course, an oral course of this is really more than most people can afford, although there are mechanisms for getting the drug. There are also a lot of drug interactions, including with SSRIs. So it's a good drug, but we're not really sure how, how to use it in, in, uh, in every situation. The second drug to talk about is daptomycin, which uh, goes by the brand named uh, uh, Cubicin. It's also the first in class. It's a cyclic lipopeptide, and it disrupts the cell membrane. And this drug is rapidly bactericidal has a low potential for emergence of resistance. It has a nice, nice pharmacokinetics, and it's given just once a day. It has some muscle toxicity, which one can monitor for clinically, and with CPKs, it doesn't seem to be severe. And, uh, and it's fairly easy to use. It's also an expensive drug. Um, but again, it has favorable pharmacokinetics, and then it can be given once a day. We were involved here in a study of this drug for uh, bacteremia and endocarditis. Uh, probably about seven years ago. And this drug, unlike linazolid, this drug actually has an approved FDA, FDA indication for bacteremia. Whether it's better than vancomycin or not is, is not entirely clear. Uh, we often will switch to DAPTO in patients with, with MRSA bacteremia who aren't clearing, and oftentimes uh, that's a successful intervention. But maybe it would have cleared anyway. Uh, so it's hard to say. At some institutions, I think they're using this preferentially now for staph bacteremia. Um, it's, it's a pretty easy drug to use. We have seen patients, however, who develop resistance on therapy. So I'm not really sure yet uh, how, how to deal with that. The, the uh, last one I'm going to talk about in detail is ceftaroline, um, which is the first cephalosporin um, that is, uh, has activity against enterococci, which I'm not talking about today, but also against MRSA. All the other cephalosporins are not good for MRSA. And this has FDA approvals for community-acquired pneumonia. It's sort of like ceftriaxone, so you can use it for you know, empiric therapy for pneumonia, but also would cover MRSA, which is a major cause of pneumonia during flu season. Um, it does not have an FDA indication for bacteremia, uh, but it's being studied for this. There are anecdotal reports of its, uh, of its efficacy. I think we just have to stay tuned. I looked last night on the online where you can uh, check out all the studies underway, and this study is well into the recruitment phase for bacteremia. Um, I'll say in this uh, patient who was in the hospital uh, just discharged yesterday who had persistent staph bacteremia, um, I very wisely on the weekend switched her from vancomycin to ceftaroline for treatment of the bacteremia, and a week later she was still bacteremic. Um, and then she got switched by someone who took over from me, Brian, I think, to daptomycin, and her bacteremia cleared. So not yet sure how effective it will be. I should mention briefly uh, some of the drugs that we use for outpatient therapy of MRSA. Um, and this is a nice story because, as I said, these are usually susceptible to inexpensive, well-tolerated oral drugs. Um, the first one is trimethoprim sulfa. Uh, we know that a lot of patients say they're sulfa-allergic, but that can be a problem, but it's usually a well-tolerated drug. One caveat about this is that we often underdose it. So the typical <coughs> dose of Bactrim is a double-strength tablet twice a day for E. coli urinary tract infections. That's probably not the best dose for serious skin and soft tissue infections uh, in adults caused by staph. And what we usually do is treat with uh, three times a day or else two pills twice a day approaching sometimes 10 milligrams per kilogram of the trimethoprim component. Um, and there are, there are studies, I think, that confirm that. The other drug is uh, doxycycline, um, uh, also a well-tolerated drug, used so widely now that there have even some, been some shortages of it, although I think uh, we haven't had trouble lately. But the price has gone way up, even though it's a generic drug. 100 milligrams twice a day. It causes some GI upset. Can't use it in children or pregnant or breastfeeding women. And you have to caution people about photosensitivity, which can be uh, quite severe. But the drugs are of comparable efficacy for treating uh, skin and soft tissue infections in, in outpatients. Clindamycin is sometimes useful, but we worry about diarrhea, including C. diff, 
and many strains are resistant, so you have to really check that. It's not a good drug for empiric therapy, whereas doxycycline and Bactrim, like 90-something percent of our strains are susceptible, so you can use them as empiric therapy. Now, one of the uh, uh, key things that we deal with in staph infections is this issue of biofilms, which I'll talk about briefly. Biofilms are slimy layers formed when aggregates of bacteria encase themselves in this scaffold of a polysaccharide and protein matrix, especially on foreign materials. So what we're really talking about is IV catheters and, uh, and prosthetic devices. And bacteria that are in biofilm are said to be 500 times more resistant to antibiotics than those that are just floating around. And this is because of failure of the antibiotic to penetrate into the biofilm and that the, there are slow-growing cells there which are not very susceptible to antibiotics. So this is a picture that I got online of, of a staph, staphylococci in this biofilm. This is one, it's actually a, from a Dartmouth uh, researcher, I can't remember who, the picture I found online is, again, this, this, this matrix. So one of the problems is getting rid of, of bacteria in biofilms. And for that reason, we often use the drug rifampin. Rifampin is a great drug for staph when it's used under specific circumstances. The problem with it, aside from toxicity and drug interactions, the problem is that staph develops resistance very quickly. So it always has to be used in combination with other drugs. And we try to reserve it for when the number of bacteria has been reduced. So we don't use it for staph bacteremia initially anyway, because there's so many staph around that it gets resistant. So it's highly bactericidal, um, excellent bioavailability. It gets into biofilms and eliminates bacteria in biofilms. It has great concentration in devitalized tissue, uh, and uh, it's a very effective drug. The only other thing I want to mention uh, about, uh, about antibiotics is about use of antibiotics for necrotizing or toxin-producing staphylococcal infections. So the two uh, the prototypes for this, one is toxic shock syndrome, um, which is caused by this toxin TSST1. And another example of this would be staphylococcal or streptococcal necrotizing fasciitis. So this is a, a, just part of a studies we've done through the years on looking at various antibiotics on production of TSST1. The problem with toxic shock is not uh, the number of bacteria, but production of this toxin uh, TSST1. So this basically shows, um, this line here is how much toxin is produced in a flask in the test tube when you just have uh, the bacteria uh, in the culture medium and you have this much toxin. And one of the things that we found is that at sub-inhibitory concentration of antibiotics, not only did you not get a, uh, a decrease in toxin, but you had like a tenfold increase in toxin production in the setting of beta-lactam antibiotics. What's basically happening is that the, the beta-lactams are stimulating production of beta-lactamase by the bacteria, which is co-regulated with toxin production. And so you have this paradoxical big increase in toxin production um, when you use beta-lactam, which explains the observations for why some people get worse rather than better when they first start on treatment. Vancomycin was kind of neutral in this regard, but the interesting thing is to look at these uh, protein synthesis inhibitors, where you can see that at tremendously small concentrations, sub-inhibitory concentrations, you get almost complete blocking of toxin production. So this is true not only of TSST1, but of other extracellular toxins made by staph, and that's why we recommend using clindamycin for necrotizing fasciitis, uh, for example. I'd like to finish then by talking about uh, uh, staph bacteremia and some of the work we were doing here on it um, over the past uh, five or so years. So staph bacteremia is very common nationwide, about 10 episodes per 1,000 hospital discharge. The 30-day mortality is high, 21% with bacteremia. And one of the things that, that makes this such a challenging uh, entity is that patients with bacteremia often have endocarditis. They develop endocarditis that's the source, or they develop it as a result of the bacteremia. It's a sticky bug. When do you suspect endocarditis? If someone comes in off the street with bacteremia, that's more likely to be uh, endocarditis. The absence of a primary site of infection, the presence of metastatic foci from embolization, or if you have fever or bacteremia lasting more than three days after removal of a device, that suggests that there's an endovascular infection. So as a general principle, when you have staph bacteremia, if there's any doubt, you have to treat as though the patient has endocarditis. 
which is a, a prolonged course of therapy. And that's kind of the cornerstone of, of our thinking. So uh, about uh, four years ago now, the new policy came into play here, as it has in many other institutions, of mandatory consults for staph bacteremia. I put mandatory in quotes because we don't really meet much resistance. It's not like we have to fight our way in. But it is the policy here at the hospital that, that all patients with staph bacteremia have an ID consult. So I, I, I was always self-conscious about this, so I've spent some time looking at what the rationale for it is, and I think there is a good rationale. Um, first paper about this was by Fowler in 1998, who uh, wrote a paper that um, said that patients whose doctors follow the recommendations of IV specialists are more likely to be cured. And they, the, the most important risk factor for treatment failure they found was failure to follow the recommendation to remove an IV device, uh, inter an intravascular device. And, and their algorithm for evaluation and treatment was to do TEEs, Fowler's cardiologist, remove intravascular devices, perform follow-up blood cultures, and to use beta-lactam antibiotics. Um, so there have been a number of studies on this. I'll, I'll spend a little bit more time on this one because it came from uh, our institution. Uh, Tim Leahy, Ruta Shaw was one of our fellows. Uh, Jen Gitz was a fellow. Joe Schwartzman, who's director of the microlab, and Kathy Kirkland, you all know, wrote this paper um, in, published in Medicine a couple years ago, Infectious Disease Consultation Lowers Mortality from Staph aureus Bacteremia. It's a retrospective study. They acknowledge the, the problems with retrospective studies. 240 patients they looked at. Um, and they found that patients with, who had ID consults had closer follow-up of blood cultures, had more often had appropriate antibiotic selection, and were more likely to have appropriate source control. And they did a multivariate survival analysis. And they found that ID consults were associated with lower hospital mortality, especially for patients with MRSA. Um, this is a, a, a figure from their paper that came from here. It's really one of the first papers like this and is widely cited. The right antibiotic, uh, so uh, black is uh, infectious disease concept. More often had the right antibiotic. Uh, more often repeat cultures were done. Uh, more often had appropriate drainage procedures. Uh, line removed when, when appropriate, So, And in terms of uh, mortality, uh, this shows the probability of surviving to hospital discharge. Uh, those who had ID consults uh, were here, and those who didn't, and, and they found a hazard ratio of 0.5, which was quite significant. So I have another, a number of other papers, which I'll show you uh, very briefly. I, I just want to say, no one ever does a study where they say, OK, let's, let's do this study to see if ID consults really help. And then you find that it didn't do any good at all. You don't publish those papers. So, so you know, these, are, these, are, these are biased studies. We have to acknowledge that. Um, then only the positives get published. But uh, this is a paper from Switzerland looking at a lot of patients. ID consultation was associated with better outcome in their univariate analysis. ID saw 82% of patients, so they didn't have enough statistics for B uh, multivariate. But this one did. This is a German study. They looked at 500 patients, 67% had ID consults, and uh, in a multivariate analysis, again, the factors uh, uh, leading to successful um, uh, outcome included ID consultation um, uh, in this study. Another one uh, published two years ago from Australia, 600 patients, um, and ID consultation was associated with better empiric therapy uh, and better outcomes. So that's just, just a handful of studies. And I, I think it makes sense uh, to, have us, to have us do them, especially, I have to say, on the surgical services, where sometimes we see patients who the, they just weren't aware of the bacteremia, or they think it's a contaminant, or they really didn't understand some of the subtleties of, of, of management. So we instituted this policy here in 2010. And uh, since that time, two ID physicians, that's Dr. Marsh and I, screen all the positive blood cultures uh, that are positive for staph aureus. We get a daily printout from the micro lab, and we look at these every day. We then record these in a database. We're looking only at unique episodes. So one blood culture entry for each episode defined as at least a month apart. So some patients have 30 positive blood cultures. We call that one. And we usually get around to these. Uh, about three days after the blood culture, by the time it gets printed, by the time it comes to our desk, et cetera. It's not done stat, um, uh, although oftentimes it's, it's pretty quickly. So 
Results of screening. Over the last 45 months, we've looked at 399 episodes of bacteremia. Most of these were one per patient, but we had 13 patients with multiple episodes. And that's about nine episodes per month. There are about two episodes a week we're seeing in this hospital of, of, of staph bacteremia. Uh, the distribution of these was about 32% were MRSA and 68% were MSSA. And MSSA is a combination of penicillin-sensitive staph and methicillin, and so-called MSSA. So as I said, I showed you a graph earlier. I think I said 37% MRSA. And so bacteremia was about the same, 32%. I just want to say, as I forgot to do so earlier, that for pen-sensitive strains, penicillin is the drug of choice. It's uh, more effective than nafcillin or cefazolin for treating pen-sensitive staff. So pay attention to that on the reports if it, if it comes up. So most of the time, we're really not uh, forcing our way into these patients. Uh, 59 or 60 percent of the time, we had already been consulted on these cases. And if, um, if we hadn't been, then most of the time uh, we saw the patient uh, after the screening. Uh, so we ended up seeing 87% of all the patients with staph bacteria as a formal consult. The ones we didn't see most of the time is because they had already passed away, or they had been discharged or transferred to another hospital. In many cases, they've been made CMO or an appropriate plan, well-established plan was on the medicine service was already in place. So, so we didn't see that patient. So I think it's working effectively. And we have anecdotal cases where it really made a difference. On medicine patients, I'd say most of the time, uh, it doesn't make a huge difference. But uh, in surgical patients, I think it's especially valuable. So a couple of concluding points uh, about uh, staph bacteremia, and then I'll, I'll take some questions. Uh, just some general principles of, uh, of staph bacteremia. First, it's an uncommon blood culture contaminant really never call it a contaminant. Sometimes we don't understand it, but it's not a contaminant. Try to identify the source of bacteremia. Now, in the literature, the general recommendation is made that echocardiography is recommended for all adult patients with bacteremia. I think you can qualify that. There are some patients uh, who may not need it. But if you're going to exclude a patient from prolonged, if you're going to say we're going to treat for a short course, meaning two weeks, you really want to be sure there's not endocarditis and do an echo. And in some institutions, it's just automatic. And in fact, they do TEEs basically automatically in all these patients. As a reminder, transthoracic echocardiography is not very sensitive for endocarditis. Transesophageal echo is quite sensitive, uh, but obviously it's much more expensive. And sometimes we see aspiration pneumonia or other consequences of the procedure. But if you look at IDSA guidelines, infectious site guidelines, it actually says all patients with staph bacteremia should get an echo. Again, I think that should be taken with a, with a grain of salt. Um, it's advisable to do additional blood cultures several days after therapy to be sure they've cleared, because persistently positive blood culture really raises the, the spectrum of, of so-called complicated bacteremia. So what is, what is complicated bacteremia? So or let's say uncomplicated, meaning it's not endocarditis. You've, done, you've proven that by echocardiography. There's no prosthetic devices in place. Blood cultures are negative, the patient defervesced quickly, and there's no metastatic foci of infection. We call that uncomplicated bacteremia. And for that, we can treat with two weeks. But it's two weeks of IV therapy or linazolid. It's two weeks, even for the uncomplicated bacteremia, because this is a very sticky bug. And it was a nice uh, study uh, by Fowler, um, who wanted to look at what the, what the risk factors were, how you could predict whether a person had complicated bacteremia. And they gave patients one point for community-acquired infection. Again, that's more likely to be endocarditis. For skin findings suggesting emboli, fever at 72 hours. And they gave two points if there were persistent positive blood culture. And this is the probability of there being complicated bacteremia goes up with the number of points. Kind of obviously intuitive. But, uh, all right. So in light of all this, I'll just uh, conclude really by, by saying, what is our empiric therapy for staph bacteremia? Well, beta-lactams are clearly superior, but since 32% of our blood isolates are MRSA, we can't treat a patient with staph bacteremia with, uh, with just nafcillin or cefazolin or ceftriaxone. So we have to use vanco. And then we transition as quickly as possible. <clears throat> How can we improve upon this? Well, one thing that our laboratory is doing is you're doing a rapid determination of, of methicillin resistance. So the way it used to be is you'd have the bug in the blood culture, it would come up every 24 hours, 
then they put it on a plate, they would look for resistance or something, so you wouldn't have the resistance for 48 hours. Now we often get it the next day because the lab runs a, a test for MECA, the MECA gene. So you'll often see in the report nafcillin susceptibility predicted. That means it's been tested negative for MECA. So that's often, we've reduced it from 48 hours down to 24, after which you can safely switch from vancomycin to a beta-lactam. But in preparing for today's talk, I found that it's sort of a new recommendation that some people are giving combination therapy with vanco plus a beta-lactam. It's untested yet, but I think it's something to consider, giving vanco and nafcillin because the nafcillin is so much better. There are some alternative drugs, daptomycin, linazolid, and ceftaroline, that have not yet been demonstrated to be superior for empiric therapy, but that may, may come about before too long. Just some additional issues uh, about, uh, about uh, treatment. For complicated bacteremia, the treatment is prolonged four to six weeks. Sometimes we use a higher dose of dapto at eight to 10 milligrams per kilogram. I'm not sure it's yet labeled for that, however. For endocarditis, six weeks. We don't use genomycin anymore. It's just been shown not to be helpful and it increases toxicity. And although I've touted the benefits of rifampin for prosthetic devices, we don't use it for bacteremia because of development of resistance. Um, so I have an algorithm, which I won't spend any time on because I want to take time for questions, but I'm happy to share this with anybody about duration of therapy. This took me a long time, but uh, get all those little things. But it basically talks about, uh, you know, if you don't know what's going on, you really have to treat for a long time. And my last slide is, I, 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 I just want to talk about uh, three new drugs, which I think we'll see this year, and which will be very interesting. Uh, two of them are vancomycin derivatives. You can see the little word uh, vanc in the middle here, dalvavancin and oritavancin. And these drugs are very interesting. First of all, they're much more potent than vanco, but also they have very long half-lives. Dalvavancin is given once a week. So theoretically, you can have a patient come into the emergency room with a staph infection, get a dose of dalvavancin, and then see them back in a week. Ortovancin, I think, is even longer. I don't know how often it's going to be dosed. If you have an allergic reaction, I think you're in big trouble, however, with these things, because they last forever. But um, they, they will probably be out, and, and they will really change, I think, how, how we treat a lot of these staph infections. And then there's a new, um, new improved linazolid called tadizolid, which I think is also, we're expecting maybe in as early as June of this year, which is given once a day instead of twice a day. It has less side effects than linazolid and it's more potent. And is bactericidal. So I think that, that uh, really this, this use of vancomycin uh, is on its, it's on its way out in favor of some of these other new strategies. I'll stop there and take any questions. So Jeff, in the world of cystic fibrosis, MRSA has been having its impact as well. And now in the national database, there are more than a quarter of our patients are colonized with MRSA. And it's associated with a shortening of life and an increased complexity of treatment. Uh, the question, however, is the uh, kind of world of uh, preventative eradication. There are protocols now in the CF world to try to uh, eradicate at first acquisition of MRSA since we do serial cultures in these patients. So can you expand that into other arenas, say preoperative culturing before repeating procedures or in outbreaks as far as eradication strategies? Do you have any comments on this? You know, I don't, I don't uh, worth thank you. It's a very important question. And um, I'll, I'll mainly leave it as an open question because I, I don't, I'm not that involved in infection control. But as you know, there have been a lot of efforts done to try to decrease postoperative infections and uh, nosocomial infections by either targeting populations at risk, like everybody who's colonized with MRSA, eliminating carriage, or by everyone admitted to the ICU, eliminating carriage, or by everyone admitted to the hospital doing cultures. And there are different procedures, uh, and I don't really know the data that well. If you eliminate carriage, you definitely decrease the risk of postoperative infections. And uh, you have to use a combination of, of things. When we're trying to eliminate uh, carriage, by staff patients, we use a combination of, uh, of either beta-lactam or bactrim or doxycycline, plus rifampin, plus mupirocin, and plus often chlorhexidine as well. And uh, efforts at controlling MRSA in hospitals has, has been fairly effective. I really can't address the CF uh, issue uh, that well. Um, it has been effective, and 
Well, it's ongoing. There are yeah. two studies ongoing yeah. right now, which include all that you've said, yeah. including treating the animals in the household. Uh, yeah. Who may be here. Yeah. Sort of the same question. We immunosuppress a lot of people, and 25 yeah. percent uh, nasal carriage is a concern today. Are there any data that uh, we should be doing something about this that we don't? Uh, I'm not really. Uh, no, you know, the major determining factors of staph tophile infection are neutrophil function. A lot of your patients are sort of defective cellular immunity. So I don't really think that they're at that much higher risk, except for the fact that they're in the hospital a lot and probably getting antibiotics. So I don't know any specific data looking at, at, uh, at your patients with the TNF inhibitors, et cetera. It's a good question. Just, I have a comment and a question. The comments about dialysis, catheter-related infections, I don't have data, but I'm pretty convinced that we've turned the tables, and it's not because we're good at antibiotic therapy, because we're not, we're actually quite terrible at it, but because we've put in a lot less catheters than we used to, there's really been an effort not to put in catheters, we've put in fistulas in people. Our nurses are much, much better about washing their hands, there's alcohol-based hand wipe at every station, um, people wear masks when the clients are open and so forth. So this, these biofilm infections, I think we're seeing a lot, a lot less of, I think. I wish we had data. Um, there are lots of reasons that we don't. Um, not very good reasons. And the question is, um, every time there's a new antibiotic that comes along, these new very powerful antibiotics, I think there's a lot of direct marketing to physicians in the community. And, and, my, and maybe to patients, I don't know if there is or not. But my question is, you know, how much does that impact what's going on and how much does that bother you? Well, it bothers us a lot. I mean, as you know, we, we, we don't, uh, as a section, we don't meet with uh, the representatives uh, on a personal basis to discuss these drugs. Uh, linazolid, ceftaroline, and daptomycin are all restricted antibiotics, meaning they need ID approval to use them um, because we, we like to uh, maintain a gateway. We had an issue uh, last year with a lot of uh, doctors from one particular surgical service ordering a lot of ceftaroline. And uh, the basis for that, I won't say what service it was, but uh, the basis for that was pressure from uh, drug reps. And we intervened in that case. And, and uh, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a big problem. Uh, I don't think it's a problem here with those particular drugs. So we are very conscious of it. Yeah, so we've seen an explosion in a lot of other fields of uh, monoclonal antibodies to treat diseases. I was just wondering, I'm a little surprised that we haven't seen that in the ID field, thinking that you could build antibodies to these organisms and use those instead of these antibiotics. I don't know if there's any research in that area or if that's uh, an There's a lot of research on vaccines, but nothing that's commercially available and that's been proven yet. There's a lot of uh, stuff about, and I think within the next five years, we'll hear about staph vaccines. That will that will decrease colonization, but there's nothing available yet. I think that really will be a, an important answer to the problem. So I, I, I worry a little bit that you're going to put us out of business. You sort of put all the pearls out there. Let's <laughs> do this. You know, um, how are we going to make our RBU targets? Well, we we have man, <laughs> mandated consults. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> Don't look at the man behind the curtain. <laughs> I had is that you know you sort of showed this progressive march of staphylococcal antibiotic resistance yeah. through the decades, and you know the, as soon as we come out with a new drug, and actually in, in many cases before we come out with a new drug, there already is antibiotic resistance. And uh, I, I wonder if you want to, you, you know, our drug companies are trying to keep up with that evolutionary change, but I think we all worry that the, the bacteria might mutate faster than we can come up with new drugs. Do you want to talk a little bit about? efforts to try to improve uh, the selection of antibiotics we have to fight and sort of uh, uh, how the IDSA is trying to address that problem. Well, I think your question raises the key points. I mean, there are lots of reasons why we have restricted antibiotics. Some of them are for issues of efficacy and safety. Some are for issues of cost. And some are because we really try to preserve uh, antibiotics for certain uses. Examples of that are use of quinolones and carbapenems in the hospital, we know that hospitals that use a lot of quinolones and carbapenems very quickly get resistant gram-negatives, and we're seeing that nationwide. Um, with staph, it's a little bit less of a problem, but everywhere that linazolid has been used and where daptomycin has been used, we are beginning to see uh, resistant bugs. So we have you know, a very detailed, comprehensive uh, 
uh, antibiotic stewardship and antibiotic monitoring program here, which, uh, which Brian runs, and, and uh, to try to prevent the emergence of resistance. Uh, I think that's, that's critical going forward with all these new drugs. As there are so many people who carry stuff uh, aureus in their nose, why don't you see more nose infections? You know? I mean, <laughs> how many years can you carry it before you get sick? And why is that? So shouldn't there be, I mean, there are people picking their nose all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it does, uh, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. The, uh, you know, it's, it colonizes us. It doesn't necessarily ha have the mechanisms to invade. This, uh, this USA 300 does cause invasive infections, and and I I, uh, I guess the nose is pretty well protected uh, by mucus and things. Pretty well protected against invasive bugs. On that note, we're going to.